Well, good morning, everyone. So glad you're with us this morning. So happy to have Phil back by my side. How you doing? I'm good. How are good. you? We're glad to have you back because we've been following this news yes. all week hoping for some rays of hope this morning. Let's get to five things we need to know this Thursday, June the 22nd. Search and rescue crews continuing and racing to find the missing submersible and its five passengers. According to the U.S. Coast Guard, the oxygen supply on board is rapidly dwindling, but they continue to hear noises underwater. And also this morning, a deadly tornado tearing through Texas leaves a path of destruction behind. A town official telling CNN her home is gone, and they still don't know how many people are injured. And Evan Gruskovich, the American reporter detained in Russia since March for alleged espionage, appearing in a Moscow court just minutes ago. He's appealing the ruling to extend his detention through August. Also, India's prime minister said to address Congress today, but some House Democrats say they will boycott his speech. Their core of their protest is human rights. And we are just hours away from the NBA draft with the most highly anticipated prospect since LeBron James. You can hear the music. Seven foot five phenom who's set to go number one. CNN This Morning starts right now. What a great song. You like that? They tell me that was Harry Belafonte. Because you were thinking of the Little Wayne version of the song that uses that. Because right? I know that everything was... about Little Wayne. Yeah, no, that's why. Yeah, that's right. So we'll get to the NBA draft in a minute because that is super exciting. We have a lot more on that. But of course, we begin with this breaking news that we've been following all week here. The, this morning, the continuing search for that missing sub near the Titanic shipwreck really is entering a dire stage this morning. At this point, it is feared that the five people on board may have little to no breathable air left. But more banging sounds were detected yesterday. The Coast Guard, though, has not been able to find exactly where they're coming from or determine if they are even from this submersible. This is video of the Canadian surveillance plane that has been dropping those sonar probes into the ocean and listening for any signs of the sub. More ships with that equipment have been racing to join the search as the window for survival is closing. That includes this ship, the Horizon Arctic, which was located, which was loaded, I should say, with the U.S. military remotely operated vehicle. The U.S. Navy's deep sea salvage system has also arrived in Newfoundland. It can retrieve objects even deeper than the Titanic, but it's just not clear when it will reach the search area. Also, this new overnight, OceanGate and its CEO, who is now missing on the Titan submersible, are coming under more scrutiny. A former subcontractor who helped develop the sub says the construction materials and design choices were considered controversial and experimental. The pressure hull itself on Titan is made out of primarily carbon fiber. Carbon fiber is a, is a completely untested material in this application, and um, that has uh, been a, a many late-night discussions. Oh, we begin our coverage this morning again with Paula Newton, who joins us from Halifax, Nova Scotia. Paula, you know, it, it, in watching this, the CEO talked about how they worked with NASA and with Boeing and the University of Washington to, to create this, but now there are more and more questions about just how it was created and how safe it is. Yeah, and especially now, given all that's happened, Poppy, I will say that this is a submersible. As Dr. Rush said that, look, there were a lot of redundancies, and that's what you want built into a system like this. So one of the ones that he had built in there was the capacity to actually rise to the surface. 
What they've got on their hands today, Poppy, is the best shot yet of either finding the submersible or being able to understand what those noises are all about. There are several ships out there now, and as you just outlined, also uh, equipment that will be able to delve deep into those seas and see exactly what happened to the Titan. When you're in the middle of a search and rescue case, you always have hope. While hope is running out against a dwindling oxygen supply. Very confident that these banging noises come from the submersible. It also rests on the indistinct banging noise detected by sonar. The noises were heard by a Canadian P3. The U.S. Coast Guard has disclosed that noises were picked up by sonar Tuesday and Wednesday during the search following the deployment of a sonar buoy by a Canadian aircraft. I can't tell you what the noises are, but what I can tell you is, and I think this is the most important point, we're searching where the noises are, and that's all we can do at this point. Acoustic information sent to the U.S. Navy has so far been inconclusive. We are very aware of the time sensitivity around this mission. The search area has expanded to twice the size of Connecticut and up to two and a half miles deep, with more ships and aircraft arriving today to join the around-the-clock aerial and below-the-surface search. We need to go full speed, uh, regardless of what that time is, uh, and, and find that submarine. The sub was en route to explore the Titanic wreckage on Sunday, but lost communication about one hour and 45 minutes into its descent. Five passengers were on board, including Ocean Gate founder and CEO Stockton Rush, who is now facing criticism for the engineering of the sub. You know, I've broken some rules to make this. I think I've broken them with, with logic and good engineering behind me, the carbon fiber and titanium. There's a rule you don't do that. Well, I did. Two former employees separately raised safety concerns about the thickness and integrity of the submersible's hull. One employee was fired. He sued for wrongful termination. The other resigned. The lawsuit was settled out of court, and OceanGate says it conducted further testing on the sub. You know, CNN has continually reached out to OceanGate Expeditions uh, to get more information on that. Uh, obviously, everyone is hoping that the integrity of this submersible will last uh, and be able to help those five passengers survive. I want to point out a couple things, Poppy. Those noises, right? Uh, that was from a air, Canadian surveillance aircraft uh, that takes off about an hour and a half from here at uh, Canadian Forces Base Greenwood. They started to hear those noises as early as Tuesday, and that is what gave them a lot of hope for them to continually run that surveillance. As I said, a lot more help out at the scene now as well for them to hopefully move from what the U.S. Navy says are noises that are inconclusive and move that to something more concrete, right, to give them more of an opportunity to find out what those noises are and hopefully launch more of a rescue. Poppy. Certainly. Let's hope so. Paula Newton, thank you for the reporting. So it's important to put this in perspective, I think, because I yeah. had no concept of what was actually happening. I'm not super well-versed on the yeah. sea to some yeah. degree other than what you watch in movies. Just how deep down yeah. is this missing submersible? All right, keep this in mind. The world record for the deepest scuba dive was recorded at 1,090 feet. At about 3,200 feet, things get pretty dark. There's no longer light. Further down, at 5,200 feet, there isn't much marine life at all. Most animals can't even survive at those depths. 10,000 feet below the surface is the deepest a sperm whale can dive. The average depth of the ocean is a little more than 12,000 feet, and that's about where the Titanic shipwreck is. 
That's 2.4 miles below the water's surface. Let's bring in oceanographer and deep sea explorer David Galley. You saw him in the piece just now. He's a senior advisor for the strategic initiatives for RMS Titanic Incorporated, which owns the exclusive salvage rights uh, to the Titanic wreck site. And David, you you were mentioning in the piece, full speed, everything you possibly can resources wise to try and find and then start a rescue operation here. Given the clock that I think everybody is eyeing warily and with significant trepidation right now, What do you think the chances are that something can actually end up positive in this? Well, uh, we we need a miracle, Phil. And uh, I think the good news there is that miracles can happen. And, uh, you know, the Coast Guard has done a very good job in putting the right tools with the right team on the right spot. So the chances are as good as there can be. And in fact, the chances are getting better as more and more material talent shows up. Um, so, uh, as I said in that piece, you know, I think that we have to not think about the clock all the time and just go as fast as possible, mm-hmm. no matter what. Locate uh, the uh, sounds and, and get some equipment there to find out, see if we can see what those sounds are coming from. You would think having the sounds, I know every 30 minutes they were hearing banging and that was a data point and it would help them try to triangulate where this sub could be. But we've learned overnight that the search area has expanded. Remember, it was first the size of Connecticut. Now it is twice the size of Connecticut. Why would it expand and not narrow if they're focusing on the sounds? Yeah, Poppy, uh, the uh, expanding area is is the uh, aerial search, looking down on the surface of the water for anything that might be floating. And we're looking at the underwater search. And it's tough because uh, the the oceans are pitch black. You can only use sound to image uh, effectively. And you've got to be pretty much on top of the object to actually actually see it. I, I do wonder about the tapping because if it's P.H. Narjale who's on board, very experienced, he'll make sure that that sound uh, cannot be uh, interpreted as anything but human. And uh, so I'm curious about what the tapping really, the pattern really is. When it comes to the sound, and again, you'll have to excuse my ignorance to some degree on this, I assumed when people were picking up the sounds, when it seemed like it was coming in 30-minute increments, it gave a real kind of positive uh, feel in a situation which was obviously didn't have a lot of that. Uh, okay, this is only a matter of time. The experts are there. They'll figure this out and identify it very quickly. That's not actually the case, and that's not a surprise to some degree. Why? Uh, the oceans are deep. I mean, as you pointed out, two miles deep, uh, dark, incredible pressure. And you've got to have enough tools on the right spot to be able to make that determination. You know, I, we have really no idea how, how uh, small that area is where the sound is coming from. Uh, so we'll have to wait to see. And they're probably being extra special careful not to say it's definitely the submarine. Can we talk until about- they know? Oh. Sorry about that, David. Can we talk about the the material that this sub is made of? Because our viewers just saw in Paula Newton's reporting the CEO uh, saying, essentially, I broke some rules in making this. And he mentioned, I believe, carbon fiber and titanium, was it, that you're not supposed to use those or combine them in a sub? Is that right? What do you know about this? Uh, Carbon fiber is very new for that application. It's, uh, It's supposedly much lighter, much stronger than either steel or titanium. Uh, and it's spun. I don't know exactly how that works, except the idea is lighter and stronger. And then titanium is uh, metal and uh, a solid, a solid piece. Um, so there would be some differences in stress from the cold and the like. So typically you wouldn't want to do that. You'd want to have 
one smooth type of, uh, of material. And, uh, you know, Stockton did make a point almost every time he was in front of a microphone to say that this was very innovative new design and everyone in the community said this is very interesting. Could be exciting, but definitely a very interesting uh, concept. Yeah. Um, certainly something everybody's going to be looking into going for forward. Sure. Um, so we hope for the best. Uh, David Gallo, appreciate your time, sir. Thank you. Thank you. We are seeing also this morning the deadly devastation that a tornado left behind in Texas. It touched down in the small West Texas town of Matador, leveling buildings, leaving behind piles of debris. The storm has killed at least three people overnight. Our Rosa Flores joins us live from Texas. Rosa, tragic. Another tornado, more deaths. What can you tell us? Well, with daylight, Poppy, officials will be able to get a better sense of the devastation there. For now, we do have drone video. Take a look. This is Matador, Texas. It is northeast of Lubbock. The population there is about 600. And this tornado hit at about 8 o'clock last night, local time. And in that drone footage, you can see some of the destruction and devastation structures that are now debris There was also an RV turned on its side. Now, officials say that three people have died and that others are injured. Now, the mayor there says that he lost three businesses. His home, though, is okay. His family is okay. The mayor pro temp's home is completely gone. Lubbock Fire Rescue are assisting in that response. Now, this was one of about 10 tornadoes that happened in the region. At this hour, nearly 200,000 customers in the states of Texas, Louisiana, and Oklahoma are without power. And Poppy, there are more severe storms expected today, so the threat is ongoing. Yeah, we just had you on the beach earlier this week talking about these record extreme temperatures, so there has been No relief in the weather pattern for people across Texas. Rosa, thank you. Also this morning, Justice Samuel Alito facing mounting questions over his ethics and transparency after a new report details his luxury trips paid for by a hedge fund manager. Plus. House will be in order. Does not sound like order. House Democrats yelling shame after a vote to censure Congressman Adam Schiff. We'll talk, chat all about it with Josh Barrow. He's next. Very serious, Josh Barrow. Very serious. Good morning. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. On this vote, the A's are 213 and the nays are 209. With six answering present, the resolution adopted. Without objection, the motion to consider is laid on the table. House will be in order. The House says, Poppy noted, not in order. Those were House Democrats who saw gathered together chanting shame after House Speaker Kevin McCarthy announced the vote to formally censure Democratic Congressman Adam Schiff. This is why I think the context matters. It's only the third time this century that a member of Congress has been censured. Members of the GOP Freedom Caucus led the charge to punish Schiff for his role in investigating Donald Trump during the last four, five, six years. The censure resolution alleges that Schiff misled the American public by spreading false accusations that the Trump campaign colluded with Russia. 
Joining us now to discuss is the author of the very serious newsletter on Substack. It's both the title and the reality of that newsletter. And the man. And the man himself. The one and only. The one and only. Hi. You can still drink your water. That's okay. That's right. Here's what I'm struck by as somebody who covered the house for more than a decade. Um, Censures used to be bridge way too far. Uh Only the most serious. uh, And it was a massive, massive issue, massive news element. Uh, Leadership never wanted to go that far unless they absolutely had to. Yesterday kind of felt a little bit like a, eh. Yeah. Why? Well, I mean, it has no actual force of law. I mean, this is a statement by, you know, 213 members of the House of Representatives that they disapprove of what Adam Schiff did, and they think he did a very bad thing. And that's, it's a political statement that is not that different from going on television and saying that, you know, and, and raising these objections to Adam Schiff. And so I think that, you know, that it was a, a norm of the institution that they didn't do this very much. But once that norm has changed, and once you have this extreme acrimony there, and then also, I, you know, I, Adam Schiff has been particularly driving Republicans crazy. I, I, a lot of them, I think, really think that he has been leaking stuff to the media through this process. Um, and so I think that, you know, that it, it was an expression of that animosity, but it really doesn't go beyond that. There's no material consequences for Adam Schiff. I mean, they already moved him, removed him from the Intelligence Committee, but the, the, it, it doesn't have any force yeah, besides being a but, statement. But it's indicative of what they choose to spend their time on and energy on, et cetera. And it yeah. is, the question, I think, is, is it Centra Today impeachment tomorrow? I mean, McCarthy had to fight off calls from people like Congresswoman Lauren Boebert for impeachment. Listen to what he said about, you know, it being too premature for something like that. Here he was. To prematurely bring something up like that, to have no background in it, it it undercuts what we're doing. Look, this is probably one of the most important um, things members of Congress has a right to do and to take it in a flippant way to just put something privileged on the floor like that. These investigations will follow the information we get wherever it will take us. To be clear, he's talking about calls to impeach the president, Joe Biden, there. But I think our analysis this morning from our colleague Zach Wolf is really interesting because he quotes Kevin McCarthy as as asking of those who want to see impeachment, for example, what majority do we want to be? Give it right back in two years or hold it for a decade and make real change. But it also shows his vulnerability, given all the concessions he made to become speaker. Yeah, I mean, first of all, it's interesting to me he cited that history about, you know, we've taken the, re- taken the majority five times and twice we gave it back in two years. Yeah. I mean, that, that was in uh, 1948 and 1954. So that's, that's pretty long ago history, though, those one, one-term majorities. Um, but I think, you know, that when you ask about it being indicative of how the House is spending its time, we have a divided Congress and there's a Democratic president. So they needed to raise the debt limit. They will need to pass government funding bills sometime probably before the end of the calendar year. Technically, the, the, the fiscal year will run out at the end of September. Um, But other than that, there isn't a really large, robust policy agenda to actually be passed through both houses of Congress and and be enacted. The Senate has lots of nominations to act on. It It can confirm judges and members of the cabinet and that sort of thing. The House sort of has a lot of time that it can't really do very much with other than political messaging. And so Republicans are deciding among passing pieces of legislation that won't become law or passing statements like this censure that don't have the force of law. And so I think partly, you know, why they, why they spend time on this is that their, their opportunity cost is not that high. They have free time because they're not otherwise going to achieve that much this year. And they apparently loathe Adam Schiff so much that they're trying to ensure that he's a U.S. senator. Well, I don't, year to some degree. Well, that's a good point, <laughs> right, though. Like that, that's what several Democrats have been like, 
you know, Thanks. this he's this is going to raise him a ton of money. He's fundraising. It, yeah, it. Of you get weird dynamics because you know California has this top two system where all yeah. the candidates run in one primary, and there's a fairly high likelihood that you will have a general election in California between two Democrats, quite possibly between Adam Schiff and Katie Porter, the congresswoman from Orange County. Um, and Katie Porter is clearly to the left of Adam Schiff substantively on policy issues. But you had, I mean, when Dianne Feinstein was last reelected in 2018, she was running against a candidate to her left, but she was less, that candidate was less familiar to Republicans than Feinstein herself. And he picked up a lot of Republican votes from people who were just trying to vote for not Dianne Feinstein, not the Democrat they'd heard of. So I think you could have a really weird dynamic in an election in California where you could have a candidate run to Schiff's left, pick up a lot of progressive votes, and then also pick up some Republican votes from people who don't really know a lot about Katie Porter, but just know that they hate Adam Schiff from all of this coverage. Now, I think what Schiff wants is he wants to run against a Republican in the general election. He might get that. But so I think that, you know, in, in terms of the idea that this is going to make him a senator, I'm, it's not clear to me that that's true. Although, on the other hand, then maybe they've made Katie Porter a senator. I don't know that Republicans are doing any better by defeating Adam Schiff and get someone, getting someone farther to his left elected to the Senate. Um, you kind of destroyed my flippant analysis based on Democratic aides there. That's not cool, man. I, I apologize. In a very, very serious, serious way. way. Very serious. Um, all right, we have to close with uh, the most important issue of yesterday. Yes. And that was the uh, visceral verbal battle yeah. between Representative Marjorie Taylor Greene, Republican from Georgia, and <clears throat> Lauren Boebert, Republican from Colorado. Yes. Um, I believe that uh, words, you can see it right there. You're actually watching it. This was a fight that happened. The Daily Beast actually broke the news on what was said, which included Marjorie Taylor Greene uh, calling her Republican colleague a little expletive, yeah. uh, which Greene's team later confirmed. Yes. Uh, and seemed to be quite proud of to some degree. Yeah. These are two backbench members of Congress. <laughs> what happened here was like procedural and completely unserious. Yeah. And yet. Well, I mean, I, it sort of reflects that the, the purpose for which many of these members on the, on the right wing of the Republican Congress are in Congress for is more to draw attention to themselves than to make policy. It was arguing about who would have responsibility for this <clears throat> resolution to impeach Joe Biden, which is not going to pass the House, let alone the Senate. Um, and Marjorie Taylor Greene has had a number of these resolutions drafted. And then Lauren Boebert had the idea, I can bring this up as a privileged re resolution, which allows her to force it to a floor vote, even if the speaker doesn't want to bring it for a floor vote. And Marjorie Taylor Greene was clearly mad that she hadn't thought of this first. Or I think maybe more likely that Marjorie Taylor Greene wanted to be just so outrageous, but not quite this outrageous, because she actually has a real relationship with Republican leadership in a way that Boebert doesn't. And so it's like, Boebert stole my idea. She's getting attention off my idea. What a little... I, don't, I guess we can put it on the Chiron, but we can't say it aloud on CNN. Well, there's an asterisk. There. Yes, yes. I mean, it's cable. We can say it, but okay. it's 6.25 in the morning. So we're, <laughs> we're not going to. We'll wait till like to. the 7. We've got you back in the next hour, so we're going to wait till then. Okay. Sounds good. Um, wow. You kinda, he, he tried to pull me in with procedure there. Did you see that? And I, I didn't bite. Yeah. I wanted to talk about yeah. congressional thank, thank procedure. Thank you for not biting. And I'm not going to. <laughs> You're welcome, Poppy. Thank you. Stick around. <laughs> Thanks, buddy. Stick with us. Please. Of course. We appreciate it. Well, yeah. uh, back to our top story today. The estimate's growing more dire by the minute. As the search for the missing sub continues, our next guest can relate to this first. And he was on a sub that got trapped under the Titanic's propeller. That is right. His harrowing story is ahead. I, I didn't even know what... We need to have hope, right? But, but I, don't, I can't tell you what the noises are. But what I can tell you is, and I think this is the most important point, we're searching where the noises are. And that's all we can do at this point. They are trying as hard as they can. Search and rescue crews in a race against time.
trying to locate the missing submersible that set off on a mission to the Titanic wreckage site about 400 nautical miles off the coast of Newfoundland. The Titan began its nearly 13,000-foot descent on Sunday morning, but the vessel and its five-person crew vanished in less than two hours. This is not the first time that a mission to the Titanic shipwreck has gone awry. More than 20 years ago, then-ABC News science editor Dr. Michael Glenn was sent on assignment all the way down to the Titanic in a submersible when he got stuck. I felt a little bit of a boom, didn't you? Yeah. Oh my gosh, look at these things. Oh my god, look at the size of these things. Oh my gosh, so are we stuck or what? As this graphic shows, we appear to be somehow wedged alongside the giant propeller beneath the wreck of the upside down stern. Luckily, there was a three person crew. They were able to break free. A moment that Dr. Guillen captured on camera. Watch this. After half an hour, Victor's incredible piloting skills and cool headed attitude win the day. We're out. Well, joining us now is the scientist, the journalist, and author, Dr. Michael Guillen. Thank you so much for being with us. When I read your account, I was so shocked because you you don't even like, you know, going under the water at all. And so when when it, when you got this offer as a journalist at ABC News, you felt you had to take it because of what you would see. And then you get stuck in the propeller. You have a perspective that almost no one on earth has of what it is like to go down. Can you tell us about that experience given what we're going through looking for this right now? Yes. Well, good morning. Um, that's right. I, I have a deathly fear of water. And so when I was invited to be the first TV correspondent to report from the Titanic, my impulse was, oh, God, no, of mm -hmm. all things, I don't want to do that. But then I had to do my job. When we got stuck down there, um, two and a half miles beneath the surface, um, it was the sense of being buried alive under that much water. And uh, I can't even begin to tell you that uh, how terrifying that is because when we first collided, um, there was just a sense of orientation. You know, it's like when you're driving and it's a beautiful sunny day and you're top of the world, you're thinking everything is going great. And then suddenly some other car comes out of nowhere and just slams into you. And there's that moment of confusion as what, what, what just happened? And then once we realized that this was a very serious thing, uh, really the sub fell silent because neither I or my diving buddy uh, wanted to disturb the pilot, who at that point then was at the edge of his seat, uh, monitoring the situation, speaking in Russian to the mothership above us. And we, we thought, um, wow, um, how are we going to get out of this? And of course, my scientific brain started ticking off all the ways maybe we could get out. But, you know, very soon you realize, man, there is no way out. You're in the middle of the North Atlantic at the bottom, and uh, you can't call AAA to tow you out. And, and so I experienced enormous sadness. The only way I can describe it is it's as if the weight of the ocean just came down on me. And I thought of my wife. We were newlyweds. It was my anniversary, September of 2000. And, uh, and then I uh, inexplicably, ultimately uh, experienced a sense of peace. But all through these last 72 hours, I'm thinking of those five souls down there. And I know exactly what they are experiencing. I wonder if they're still alive. You know, they're hearing noises, but we can't tell what those noises are. And we're very close, if not already past the point where they've run out of oxygen. So if they're not the ones making the noise inside, you know, banging on the walls of the sub, 
which is what I would have done if they had lost uh, communications. Uh, noise travels very well in water, much better than it does in, in, in the air, and we've been listening for it. Um, then it might just be a piece of metal or part of the ship just banging pieces of metal just banging together. We may never know. We may never recover this vessel. What are you, you know, a lot of people have pointed to the people that are on the submersible and said some of them have a lot of experience, right? They've done, uh, they would know what to do in a situation like this, but you make a great point. There's nothing you can really do to some degree. Uh, when you were watching uh, the captain of your ship operate, are there things that he was prepared for? Are there protocols that you can go through or is it really just try and make noise and pray? You know, that's a really good point. When we were prepping for the dive up on, on the ship, the captain put us through a lot of orientation sessions and told us what might go wrong, told us stories about people in that situation when they panic and immediately they want to go to the escape hatch, which is, of course, uh, a death sentence, um, because when you panic, you're not thinking. So I knew that when we collided, that's the thing I didn't want to do. I didn't want to go to that escape hatch. I wanted to make sure nobody else in that sub was. I was ready to gang tackle anybody mm. who even looked at that uh, escape hatch, right? But no, I mean, and I think that's the hardest thing, especially for an intellectual like me who lives by the motto for every problem, there is an optimal solution. I mean, I've drummed that into my son's head. For every problem, there's an optimal mm. solution. And it is the most terrifying thing to experience Coming to the conclusion, no, there ain't a solution. There's no optimal solution. There is no solution, period. There's just no one around. And um, I, I imagine that at some point in, in these five folks who are in the Titan, they came to that realization. Even though you could have all the experience you, you, in the world, but at the end of the day, there's only so much you can do. And, and the idea that no amount of technology, no number of planes, ROVs, sonars, nothing, nothing can come to your rescue. If you're at the bottom of the ocean, two and a half miles down, you don't just go down there and reach in, even with a cable or a grappling hook. It's not that easy. The pressures are enormous. They're bone crushing. It's cold down there. And so I just feel that um, I, I've just been feeling for the last 72 hours this kinship with those people down there. And it's almost like I've, I'm down there with them because I know what it's like down there. It's utterly dark. There's no light. You don't certainly want to light a candle or anything in there. You use up the oxygen, whether they have flashlights or not, who knows. But this had yeah. to have been a catastrophic failure of some kind. And I'm not sure we'll ever, ever know because I'm not sure we'll ever recover that vessel. Dr. Michael Guillen, thank you for taking us literally into what they may be experiencing. We appreciate it. You're welcome. All right, we have new CNN reporting about Justice Samuel Alito and another trip he made that's raising eyebrows because of who paid for it. Welcome back. We have new CNN reporting this morning about Supreme Court Justice Samuel Alito and a trip he made to Rome last summer, a trip that was paid for by a religious liberty group that has... Uh, submitted briefs before the court in support of significant cases. This comes after ProPublica reported yesterday that Alito went on a luxury fishing trip with conservative hedge fund manager Paul Singer, who has repeatedly asked the court to intervene on his behalf. Alito did not disclose this trip on his annual financial disclosures, and he did also not recuse himself from Singer's cases before the court. Joining us now is CNN Supreme Court analyst Joan Biskupic. Joan, good morning to you. 
it, it's not uncommon for justices to travel overseas, to give speeches. This is different. That's right, Poppy. Good morning to you and Phil. You know, travel is basically good, especially when they go speak to groups. You know, it can have a very, you know, educational element to it. And even social travel, you know, up to Alaska is not in itself bad. It's who's footing the bill and whether the uh, expense ends up getting reimbursed and uh, disclosed on the annual financial forms that the justices disclose. You know, uh, there's no such thing as a free lunch, and there's probably no such thing as a free trip to an Alaska fishing resort. And that was what was reported by ProPublica that you noted. And our colleagues today have new reporting about a trip that Samuel Alito took last year to Rome, in which the Notre Dame Religious Liberty Initiative uh, paid for that. And that's a group that, as you say, uh, when you refer to uh, groups filing briefs, they submitted an amicus brief in the Dobbs uh, uh, anti-abortion rights case and others. Uh, an amicus isn't a main party to the case, but someone who has a vested interest in it. And the Notre Dame Religious uh, Liberty Group has been submitting more and more briefs. And they acknowledged uh, paying for Justice Alito's trip to Rome. Now, he may end up disclosing that one. He has po gotten an, uh, an extension to file on uh, his, his current financial disclosure report. But this is what he said when my colleague Devin Cole reached out to the Supreme Court to find out, you know, why he took this trip. And, you know, if if there was any kind of conflict, uh, taking the trip on the Religious uh, Liberty Initiative's dime. And what he said is, my understanding is that the Notre Dame Law School's Religious Liberty Initiative has a number of components, only one of which is the clinic. And the clinic is uh, the group that submitted the brief. And he said, like legal clinics at many law schools, this amicus, uh, it files amicus briefs at the Supreme Court, and I was not invited to speak in Rome by the clinic. He's drawing a line between uh, the overall umbrella group and the clinic itself. But Poppy, the reason we've been talking about it today is just because there have been incident after incident where it's been disclosed that, you know, first Clarence Thomas and now Samuel Alito taking trips and undermining public confidence in the court sure. because of the lack of full disclosure. Yeah, not to mention that he spoke about the Dobbs decision in That's that exactly right. speech before the group that had filed the brief supporting it to go the way that the majority went. So, Joan, you know, Poppy, yeah. that was the first time he even spoke about the right. Dobbs ruling was to that religious group. Yeah. Exactly right. Joan, thank you. And great reporting by Devin Cole and Audrey Ash as well. Well, this just in, detained Wall Street Journal reporter Evan Gutskovich has lost an appeal in Moscow. What we're hearing from that courtroom coming up next. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. moments ago, a Russian court upholding a decision to extend the detention of Wall Street Journal reporter Evan Gerskovich. This is video of Gerskovich appearing in a Moscow courtroom this morning. Now, the Wall Street Journal reporter is accused of spying, something he, the journal, and the U.S. government vehemently deny. Let's get to CNN's Nick Robertson with more on today's court hearing. Nick? Yeah, journalists were allowed in before the court session began, and the CNN team in there said that he looked nervous and agitated, which is unsurprising given the circumstance. Journalists were cleared out after being able to take those few photographs and a little bit of video. He was there in a T-shirt and jeans behind or inside that glass box. His parents were there for the hearing, brief as it was. Ella and Michaeli both emigrated to the United States decades and decades ago. 
The other person of significance who was allowed in the courtroom, that was a US ambassador. She said she wasn't able to speak directly with Evan in the courtroom. In fact, when she came out of the court, she again castigated the Russian authorities, said that three times she's requested consular access and it's been turned down. Now the Russians are saying they're giving it consideration again. Don't know how long that will take, but she was very clear, the ambassador was very clear that Evan is being wrongly detained. Today, in the courtroom, Evan continued to show remarkable strength and resiliency in these very difficult circumstances. Despite Russian officials' public assertions about Evan's activities, let me reiterate the U.S. government's firm position. The charges against him are baseless. He is an innocent journalist who was carrying out journalistic activities and has been wrongfully detained. And that is exactly, of course, what the Wall Street Journal, his employers, are saying too. It is very clear to everyone looking at this from overseas, and certainly from the US government perspective too, that this is a politically motivated case, that he was, as she says, just doing his job. Nick Robertson, thanks so much for the reporting. Officials fear there are just a few hours worth of oxygen left on board. That missing sub will take you back live to Canada as crews race to find the vessel. Well, this next story could very well be the plot of a Hollywood spy thriller, but it is not fiction. According to a new book, Russia tried to assassinate a CIA informant right here in the United States, in Miami. The alleged plot fail was foiled, I should say, in 2020. The target, Alexander Putoyev. According to the book, he is a former high-ranking Russian intelligence official who in 2010 helped the FBI arrest 11 Russian spies who were living under deep cover right here in America. As the author writes, Putin blamed the failure of the SVR sleeper network on traitors. And he is reported to have said chillingly, quote, traitors will kick the bucket. Trust me. Joining us now is the author, Calder Walton. He is the author of this book, Spies, the Epic Intelligence War Between East and West, which is out now in the U.S. This new reporting is revealed in the British edition of the book, due out later in a month. But this is fascinating. The New York Times did a big piece on this as well. Those reporters triple-checked what you had found confirmed all of it. Take us inside this story. Well, thanks very much for having me on. I really appreciate it. So the story came to me as I was finishing the book, um, and it was a big gamble. I'm not an investigative journalist. I'm a historian. Um, It was a big gamble to put it in there, and it's been um, nice, to put it mildly, to have the uh, New York Times confirm my reporting. The big thing about this story is, in my view, not so much the target, um, who... um, bravely gave uh, uh, U.S. intelligence secrets from within Russian intelligence. Um, It's not so much about him. It's more about the plot by the Russian government and what uh, Putin's regime and his intelligence services were, as the New York Times now confirms, trying to do in this country. So there's always been a bright red line to um, prevent um, that the Russian government would not Um, conduct assassinations on U.S. soil. This was all the way through the Cold War. Um, It has been up until this point apparently existing, and it appears now that Putin 
uh, was willing to cross over that red line and actually conduct an assassination on U.S. soil. It's it's absolutely profound. When I read the headlines at first, I thought there's no way that's possible. There's no there's rules, right? We all think that there's rules. There's red lines. Um, This making clear that. I guess my question is, has this been a, a clear and intentional shift or has it been kind of moving in this direction over the course of Putin's time? Well, it's a, great, it's a great question. And, and, and to, to really conclusively answer that, we would need to get inside Putin's mind. And I, I, I don't have the ability to That's get into That's the next it. book. That's the next book, I guess, right? But, but I think when we look at it, um, there's a sort of a crescendo of um, covert actions that Putin has authorized, primarily in Europe um, but, and also in Britain. So Litvinenko, Alexander Litvinenko, a, a critic, was assassinated in London in 2006 using the extraordinary method of polonium-laced radioactive tea in central London. They, they radiated the streets of London. Uh, 2018, um, Putin's regime, his intelligence services, went after a, an MI6 British right. spy, Sergei Skripal, in Britain. Mm-hmm. There was a, an assassination in 2018 of a... Um, uh, Putin critic, uh, Chechen Georgian leader in a Berlin park. There's been a crescendo of hits, um, assassinations, but never, never in the US. Um, I think my own view is that this news now must cause US authorities to go back and have a look at other unexplained uh, deaths in the US. Wow. Um, there are people who are Putin critics who have um, been found dead conveniently for Putin and I hope that the U.S. authorities are now going back over some of those old cases. Just shows how important you say you're not an investigative reporter, but what you have uncovered here really is in terms of trying to get some answers for those people as well. Calder, thank you. Thank and I'm, you. I'm sorry that we're out of time. Thank you for having we me. Appreciate really appreciate it. it. Congratulations, Congratulations on the book. Thank, thank you. See you this morning continues right now. frantically searching for the missing submersible after hearing more sounds. A former OceanGate contractor says some cutting-edge technology on the Titan was considered controversial. We're searching where the noises are, and that's all we can do. They will not stop until they determine what has happened to the Titan. For only the third time this century, a member of Congress was censured in a deeply partisan vote. Adam Schiff put the American people through four years of an endless impeachment hoax. Your words tell me that I have been effective in the defense of our democracy. They've turned it into a puppet show. You look miserable. There's a new court filing that reveals discovery is already underway. Special counsel Jack Smith and his prosecutors hint that they have multiple recordings of the former president. Clearly, there's more to it than simply the facts that are laid out in the indictment, which are very, very substantial. This case is moving. A tornado has struck Matador, Texas. Matador's mayor tells CNN that there are many injuries and many structures destroyed. Another town official tells CNN her home was completely destroyed and most of her farm animals are dead or missing. It'll be no surprise to anyone if Victor Wembanyama is the first name called at tonight's NBA draft. It's really special for me and my family. Our life is going to change. I have such high expectations for myself. I always remember, I know what I want to do, and nothing's going to stop me from doing it. And it doesn't just stop to basketball, it's about life. Good morning, everyone. We are so glad you're with us. Did you watch the draft? It hasn't happened yet. It's tonight? <laughs> Thank you, Poppy. I needed that. Well, it's today. happening tonight. 
Uh, we're going to get to That's the NBA tease, draft. The and we're going to get to the NBA draft in a moment. And what is going to happen tonight? Uh, we're going to get to that and have a little fun in the show. But we do begin with very serious news this morning that we've been following all week, and that is the desperate race to find a missing sub that vanished while diving toward the Titanic wreckage. This race is reaching a critical moment. At this point, it's feared the five people on board may have little to no breathable air. That's the big concern we've been talking about. But banging sounds were detected yesterday again. The U.S. Coast Guard hasn't been able to find where or what the sounds are coming from, though. This is video of the Canadian surveillance plane that has been dropping sonar probes into the ocean and listening for that sub. Well, more ships with special equipment have been racing to join the massive search and rescue operation as that window for survival closes. The Horizon Arctic scene here is bringing a U.S. military remotely operated vehicle. U.S. Navy's deep sea salvage system has also arrived in Newfoundland. It can retrieve vessels deeper than the Titanic, but it's unclear when it will reach the search area. Paula Newton joins us live from Halifax, Nova Scotia. And Paula, what's the latest right now? You know, this is going to be a day like no other out there, Phil, and that's incredibly good news given the timeline that we're dealing with. There could be up to 10 ships on the scene. And principally, what's important here is more capacity to actually dive deep beneath the ocean there as far as perhaps that Titan is resting now, perhaps as much as 13,000 feet, maybe two and a half miles in that seabed and be able to actually locate it given those noises that have been heard now at least for two days. When you're in the middle of a search and rescue case, you always have hope. While hope is running out against a dwindling oxygen supply. Very confident that these banging noises come from the submersible. It also rests on the indistinct banging noise detected by sonar. The noises were heard by a Canadian P3. The U.S. Coast Guard has disclosed that noises were picked up by sonar Tuesday and Wednesday during the search following the deployment of a sonar buoy by a Canadian aircraft. I can't tell you what the noises are, but what I can tell you is, and I think this is the most important point, we're searching where the noises are, and that's all we can do at this point. Acoustic information sent to the U.S. Navy has so far been inconclusive. We are very aware of the time sensitivity around this mission. The search area has expanded to twice the size of Connecticut and up to two and a half miles deep, with more ships and aircraft arriving today to join the around-the-clock aerial and below-the-surface search. We need to go full speed, uh, regardless of what that time is, uh, and, and find that submarine. The sub was en route to explore the Titanic wreckage on Sunday, but lost communication about one hour and 45 minutes into its descent. Five passengers were on board, including Ocean Gate founder and CEO Stockton Rush, who is now facing criticism for the engineering of the sub. You know, I've broken some rules to make this. I think I've broken them with, with logic and good engineering behind me, the carbon fiber and titanium. There's a rule you don't do that. Well, I did. Two former employees separately raised safety concerns about the thickness and integrity of the submersible's hull. One employee was fired. He sued for wrongful termination. The other resigned. The lawsuit was settled out of court, and OceanGate says it conducted further testing on the sub. And, Paul, I think one of the questions I've had, who's paying for these very wide-scale, multiple countries' search efforts that are ongoing right now? 
Yeah, uh, that's an interesting question, Phil, and the answer is you and I, uh, Canadian and U.S. taxpayers, essentially are footing this bill. You know, Joyce Murray, the uh, Canadian minister in charge of the Canadian Coast Guard, was asked that question yesterday, and she was very blunt, saying, look, we're human beings. They're in distress in terms of international norms and international law. If you or I were out on the high seas and we sent out a distress call, they would come. The Coast Guards would help. And this is the kind of search and rescue that they're doing. That is not to say, Phil, that there won't be questions asked in the coming weeks and months as to whether or not this kind of deep sea exploration by a private company is warranted or advisable. And you can bet uh, that there will be many questions about that uh, coming in the next few weeks. Paula Newton, we appreciate the reporting. Thank you. Well, let's turn out to one of the few people on Earth who has actually been to the Titanic wreckage in a submersible, Dr. Joe McGinnis. He's a physician and a diver. And in 1985, he was a member of the first expedition to locate the wreck of the Titanic. Uh, thanks so much for joining us. I want to, as somebody with experience, both uh, very specifically in this case, but also just generally, what are the things that you would run through in terms of what could go wrong in an expedition like this, since there's so little we know about what happened here? Well, I, I don't know the sub. I don't know the Ocean Gate company. But for all of us who work in the deep ocean, there are three areas of, of focus and they are fire entanglement and through hull failure and we take extraordinary steps to prevent them and to be ready in case they happen so fire is a possibility because of the uh, number of you know, connect electrical connections inside sub and then there is um, entanglement where you you get caught up in something on the wreckage, for example. The, the debris field is very large in the Titanic zones, and there's torn pieces of metal and tangles of industrial wire. So that's a possibility that, uh, that we all try to avoid. And the, the third is through-hull failure, where there's a breach in, in the hull. And we all know the story of 1963, where the USS Thresher was on a test dive and it went through its collapse depth and there was a, a massive implosion. So these are the things that, that run through our minds and, and we really work hard to prevent uh, in, in our systems and in our procedures. I should note one of your friends is on board that sub, PH uh, Nargolay, and you've called him an extraordinary leader in a situation like this. I want your reaction to one thing that the CEO of the company, Stockton Rush, who's also on board, said uh, in the past about innovation and breaking rules. Here he was. I'd like to be remembered as an innovator. Um, I think it was General MacArthur said, you're remembered for the rules you break. And, you know, I've broken some rules to make this. I think I've broken them with, with logic and good engineering behind me. Specifically, he's spoken about combining carbon fiber and titanium on a vessel like this, which hasn't really been done. What is your reaction to that, knowing all of your experience? Well, let us understand. I'm a physician, physician scientist who specializes in leadership. I'm not an engineer, so I, I don't want to go near the subject. But I, do, I want to do say, I want to say one thing, and that is that for all of us who, who work in the deep ocean, there are two fundamental rules. And the first rule is take care of each other. And the second is take care of each other. And as your reporting has told us, 
for the past four days, this this international search team has uh, has done everything possible to try to find the vehicle and rescue the occupants, and they they've moved heaven and earth to to make this possible. So they have honored that code, and so I think no matter what happens, uh, we all of us uh, have to respect and and uh, admire and and be very grateful for what they're doing and and what they've done to that point uh or the point of poppy's question i think you want to focus on the now and that is trying to find and save the people inside the submersible vessel i understand that you're not an engineer but in terms of you know you lay out the three kind of critical issues that you're dealing with in exploration like this and the ability for a ship to actually do this technologically is pretty key to that. And that's what I, what I think I'm trying to figure out is the balance between innovation and safety. Uh, how much can a, an innovator or somebody like this CEO push that given that the downside is death here and not just death to one person, but the entire crew? Well, this is all speculation and, and frankly, an area that I just would like to stay away from now. Uh, that's going, all of those questions are going to be answered. It's, it's going to take a lot of more information and analysis. Uh, the for, focus for me right now is, is those five human beings in that vehicle. And, and, uh, and again, I'm so impressed as, a, as a, an individual who's had some a lot of time working with really ex- extraordinary people in the deep ocean to, to see what they do, how they do it, and to be so grateful for, for what they're doing for us today. Doc, Dr. Joe McInnes, thank you very much for your time and your perspective. Thank you. And also this morning, just in, the U.S. Coast Guard says a remote-operated vehicle has, quote, reached the sea floor and has begun searching for the missing submersible. The ROV comes from the Canadian vessel Horizon Arctic. Another ROV from a French vessel is also preparing to enter the water. That is a good sign in this search as we keep up hope. Meantime, overnight, a second deadly tornado in Texas in less than a week. It has killed at least four people. The tornado just devastated the small town of Matador. That's in the western part of the state. It ripped through homes and businesses, leaving a path of destruction. At least 10 people we know this morning have been injured. And in Colorado, something we don't often see, twin, look at that, twin tornadoes spotted in the town of Akron and the storm threat not over yet. Colorado is on alert for severe thunderstorms and flash floods. Also hail larger than an inch in diameter has been reported in Denver. Severe storm alerts continue across northwestern Texas and Nebraska and Wyoming. That includes large hail, strong winds and isolated tornadoes. All right, well, it looks like special counsel Jack Smith might have multiple recordings of former President Trump in that classified documents case. The big revelation came in a new court filing as Trump and his defense team received the first batch of evidence against him from federal prosecutors. CNN senior crime and justice reporter Caitlin Polance broke this story. She's broken so many. Caitlin, we previously only knew about one audio tape. I believe you broke that story as well to some degree. Um, what actually happens now? 
Well, Phil, now the, the Justice Department has to hand over all of the evidence that they have in this case against Donald Trump, whether it's going to come up at trial or not. They have to give it over to his defense team so that everybody can be fully prepared for the trial. And in this court filing last night, pretty late, uh, we did get indication from the prosecutors exactly what they're turning over already, what they gave to the team yesterday. So let's go through the list so far. So they're handing over recorded interviews plural, interviews. So they say that that does include that Bedminster July 2021 audio recording of Donald Trump holding up a document related to Iran and Mark Milley and and talking about it. But there are other interviews that they have. We don't know how relevant they may be to the case, but Donald Trump apparently is on tape by his own consent speaking to people. And that is part of the case, part of the evidence. In addition to that, grand jury testimony transcripts, other information that they've gathered from witnesses, uh, defendant Walt Nada's testimony, he actually spoke to investigators twice, once uh, in an informal interview and then in the grand jury. He's charged with uh, making some false statements there as part of this case. So they're going to get a full sense of what they have to deal with, uh, both for the Trump defense team and Walt Nada's defense team when they go to trial with him, what he said specifically to investigators. There's also CCTV footage in this case. We know surveillance footage was quite a part of the Justice Department's ability to understand that there were documents being kept at Mar-a-Lago. But Phil, the thing in putting all of this together is that the Trump team now is going to get a really good sense of just how strong this case is by the Justice Department and specifically who has been talking what they've said. And just a reminder that everything wasn't in the indictment here, which is pretty clear. Kalen Polans, thanks very much. Well, unrelenting extreme heat is scorching Texas and breaking records. Dr. Sanjay Gupta will join us live to explain the dangers people are facing right now and how they can stay safe. Plus, sources tell CNN Speaker Kevin McCarthy is warning House Republicans now is not the time to try to impeach President Biden. We'll talk about that. Estet Herndon, Josh Barrow, they're here. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. This is basically Trump and MAGA world going after someone they think is effective in standing up to them. Uh, I think the investigation of his misconduct was very important. Uh, it ultimately led to his impeachment, which I was proud to lead. Uh, and it led to the first bipartisan vote to remove a president in U.S. history. Uh, I was also proud to serve on the January 6th committee, and I would do all of that again. That was Congressman Adam Schiff on CNN last night after being censured in the House. House Republicans had sought the censure for what they said were misleading statements about that investigation the Congressman referred to into the Trump campaign's ties to Russia. Now, House Republican hardliners are setting their sights not just on Schiff or the DHS secretary, but President Biden. Congresswoman Lauren Boebert introducing a resolution aimed at impeaching the president. Her effort appears to be providing yet another point of division and tension within the party. We're going to bring in CNN political analyst, New York Times national politics reporter, Estad Herndon, an author of the very serious, very serious newsletter, very serious man himself, Josh Barrow. Good Josh, morning. welcome Hi, back. Estad, nice of you to join us this morning. Josh was here on the 6th, by the way. Like it's, uh, but we, we, feel good. we feel good about uh, your presence. Um, I think we, we, for every reason, get caught up in kind of the, you know, whether the profanity-laced battles between people, the Republican conference, and, and where that splits and divides. I think the most fascinating thing is they have a very slim majority, mm -hmm. and the people who gave them the majority are 18 Republicans, 18 Republican freshmen who won districts that Joe Biden won in 2020. Yeah. And they hate that this is happening. Absolutely. How does this end? 
I mean, that's a great question. This has been the kind of struggle that Speaker McCarthy has found himself in even before he got the gavel. The reason it took him so long to be able to win the Speaker gavel in the first place was because the kind of hardline right of the GOP conference was refusing to really step down after the midterms. This was a midterms that should have been really disempowering for them. We saw the country kind of universally reject those type of hardline messages, particularly in swing races. But that's not how they saw it. They saw it as another attempt with that slim majority for them to kind of bring Speaker McCarthy closer to them. I mean, actually, I think we have seen impeachment efforts coming from this wing, people like Marjorie Taylor Greene and Congresswoman Boebert, since before the midterm elections. Yeah. The fact that it's <laughs> even coming back up now, I think, is actually a sign of Speaker McCarthy's relative strength in being able to manage this caucus. It's going to keep coming up, these fract- uh, these divisions, because of that slim majority. But I think you're really going to see them trying to increase the pressure on Speaker, Speaker McCarthy as the presidential race comes around, because they're seeing this as an opportunity to score kind of messaging points uh, rather than actually kind of the serious effort of policymaking. But Josh, is the question whether those messaging points got them anything, exactly. or did they help elevate Adam Schiff in his race for the Senate in California? Well, I, I, I think Adam Schiff is laughing all the way to, to the bank on this, as, as you've noted. Um, I think, you know, in, in terms of, of that messaging, I think, you know, Republican candidates for the House in, in the midterms outran Senate candidates. The Republicans in the House typically tried to run sort of more normal campaigns on issues that were good for Republicans, like crime and inflation. You had candidates in a lot of these Senate races who were running, basically trying to relitigate the 2020 election, obsessed with Donald Trump and, and vindicating him, and they, they underperformed the House candidates. And so I think this sort of stuff, where you're trying to do impeachments and that sort of thing, I don't think that's in the GOP's political bread and butter. And I think if you're someone like Mike Lawler, who's one of the mm-hmm. Republican congressmen representing yeah. a, a Biden, Biden district, district in New York, you can't be happy about this sort of thing. But I think it, you know, the, the, a majority of the conference has clearly been lining up with McCarthy on this stuff. I thought it was impressive uh, on the debt ceiling deal that he got 149 Republicans yeah. behind that bipartisan deal. Because you had some of these agreements like 10 years ago with John Boehner and Paul Ryan, where you actually had less than a majority of the Republican conference having to depend mostly on Democrats to pass these things. Here you got a large bipartisan majority. It seems like it's, it's a clear majority of the conference is behind his strategy of trying not to end up in these sorts of things like the Biden impeachment. Um, and they'll be able to use a procedural move to, to basically take this thing off the floor without actually making Republicans vote on whether to impeach Joe Biden. Don't let Phil and start talking some- about procedural moves. <laughs> we'll do it during the break. And, and he's had some kind of Trump-aligned support in doing those efforts. You know, Marjorie Taylor Greene has been someone who's become sort of an ally yeah. to Speaker McCarthy in these type of efforts. I think that shows you that he's kind of gotten this caucus together by really leaning in to his, uh, uh, you know, his ability to get kind of favor on the Trump side. And so, I mean, I think there's been some underestimation of Speaker McCarthy that has really kind of paid off for him here. But the task that he's up against remains so difficult because as you keep going and as maybe Donald Trump becomes more of an imprinted figure as when the Republican primary, it's going to become harder and harder to keep that wing of the GOP silent. And I think that's my big question, right, is because unquestionably you got more votes than anybody would have ever expected on mm-hmm. that deal. He got a deal. There yeah. wasn't a default. Um, he's kept his conference in line for far longer, uh, with far more unity than I think anybody suspected, particularly after the 15 votes it took him to become speaker. But there's also kind of a feeling almost constantly that's pervasive in Washington of like, well, all right, he got to tomorrow. What about the next day? Yeah. Yeah. And so I think my question is, is are, are people just persistently underestimating him in a flawed manner? Or is eventually this all going to come to a head? 
Well, the, the next day is they have to pass spending bills by the end of the year, uh, either by September 30th or they might do a continuing resolution. Sometime by the end of the year, they have to have an agreement. And basically, with the, with the last agreement on the debt ceiling, he really rolled the, the far-right part of his conference, totally. which I think was surprised by the way that worked out. And then they basically said, well, okay, you had this deal, but now you have to pass spending bills that actually spend less money than that deal said. The problem is the House is going to spend those bills, pass those bills. The Senate's going to throw them in the trash. The Senate's going to write appropriations bills that actually align with the deal that McCarthy made in the first place. And I expect he will then roll that, that right-wing end of his conference again. There will be another likely bipartisan vote uh, for, the, for, the, for, the, for, the, for the more detailed spending deal. And I think they will be caught by surprise again. But you know, the, I think he, he showed that he has the bulk of his conference behind him to do these sorts of agreements and if he was able to do it once, I don't see why he can't do it again. It's, it's going to be fascinating to watch. I, I do want to know one, Poppy. I also avoided getting drawn into an appropriations discussion. Do you want to know when the NBA draft <laughs> No, I, I, we'll talk about that later. It's, yeah. it's later, by the way. But I also want to focus a little bit on uh, Estes' shoes right now because I saw <laughs> them when we were walking in. And, are they like, called? Oh, sick. Yeah, they, they are. Are they called dunks? No, those are no, Force no, ones. No, these are Force ones. But I they, knew that. It's, I mean, that's solid. Could you rock Especially those? Especially with this. You probably have those. I bought some for Sienna for my daughter, but yes, That's I cool. need to. I, I think this is in your future, both of y'all. Okay. I can see us <laughs> having a full Air Force like One. Can we have <laughs> Air Force One or Dunk Friday? Yeah. I like that. Yeah, I like thanks, that. Thanks, Implement it. Thank you, Josh. You're the boss. All right, guys. Thanks so much. Thank you. Um, coming up, we return to our top story this morning. We're going to be joined by someone who knows two of the passengers aboard the missing submersible, the Titan. He also tried twice to make that same voyage to the Titanic. Both attempts were canceled. Well, this morning, the urgent search continues for the Titan submersible and the five people inside. Let's take a closer look at the vessel. The entire sub is a little more than eight feet high. It is 22 feet long, nine feet wide. It is powered by four thrusters, two vertical, two horizontal. Those thrusters are powered by an external electrical system, but an internal power system powers communications and a heater. Inside of the hull, a maximum of five passengers have to sit cross-legged on the floor. There are no windows except that single viewport on the front. Well, the U.S. Coast Guard is urging the public to stay positive. We need to have hope, right? But, but I, don't, I can't tell you what the noises are. But what I can tell you is, and I think this is the most important point, we're searching where the noises are, and that's all we can do at this point. Joining us now is an astronaut, self-proclaimed adventurer, Per Wemmer. He knows two of the passengers on the missing submersible and was previously signed up for two trips to the Titan that were both ultimately canceled. Um, thanks for joining us. I think you heard what the Coast Guard official was saying there. Do you still have hope? Yes, I still have hope. I, I remain optimistic, positive, and uh, hoping for a miracle here, at least until it's proven otherwise. Um, I know that the adventurers on board are experienced, very experienced, so they would no doubt know what it means to slow down, take it easy, um, and, and, and use as little oxygen as, as possible and therefore extend the uh, potential uh, timeline as much as possible. Um, so we're crossing fingers and, and really hoping, and it's, it's amazing to see how the whole world has sort of come together, both in terms of governments de uh, deploying serious assets here, planes, mm -hmm. ships, uh, submersibles, uh, but also the, the public at large. It's really heartening to see, but uh, we pray for the best. We certainly do. You're, you also know two of the five passengers on board, both Hamish and the CEO Stockton Rush. Do you have any sense of how they would be handling a scenario like this? I mean, no one knows the vessel better than the CEO. 
No, exactly. So if you are stuck down there, you want to be stuck with somebody who, who knows how the whole thing operates, etc. So having Stockton as a pilot, knowing the ins and outs of, of how this submersible works uh, is a good thing in this context. Uh, both uh, Hamish and, and Stockton are, are very accomplished adventurers. Hamish has got three Guinness uh, World Records to his name. Mm. He's a very accomplished av aviator. Uh, he has been diving a lot before, uh, and he's just a, a really nice guy. Um, mm. And and therefore he's 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 and he's also a very accomplished businessman. So he would know to keep his cool. Um, I know, but you can only imagine how stressful and difficult uh, and mentally challenging it must be yeah. to to sit there in a in that can uh, stock uh, have, uh, far down um, underneath the water. It must be very terrifying. I, I can't even imagine. Um, just to think about it makes you shudder to some degree. You know, you were scheduled for a 2019 trip uh, to the Titanic. I think there's been some reporting that, you know, in 2018, there's a letter from some engineers raising some concerns, uh, the potential for catastrophic problems uh, related to uh, the Titanic mission. You, I, I think, if I'm correct here, you weren't aware of that letter at the time, but I think you also had some concerns as well. Is that accurate? Yeah, I wasn't aware of the letter at the time. I know there was a bit of debate because this is a new design of a submersible. It is made of composite material. Uh, typically, you would have other submarines like the Russians, uh, Mir 1, Mir 2, made of uh, steel, titanium, and uh, nickel. So very, very solid. So it is a new, new type of design um, and experimental in that sense. Uh, however, the, this particular submersible has done a lot of dives down in the Caribbean. And also during the other seasons, uh, it, it has been up and down to the Titanic. And if these banging sounds that we have been hearing uh, recently uh, come from the submersible, which I believe is the case, um, then that means it hasn't imploded and therefore there hasn't been a structural fault with it. But it must have been some sort of mechanical fault that just makes them unable to come back up to the surface. Pear Winner, thank you so much for helping us understand. And also our thoughts are with you, given that you know two of those five passengers on board. We really appreciate your time this morning. Thank you very much. Of course. Well, we also know that two of the five people aboard that missing stub are a Pakistani businessman and his son. Meanwhile, at least 181 Pakistani citizens have been registered as missing by Pakistan's federal investigation agency after a boat carrying migrants capsized off the coast of Greece last week. Uh, the Greek Coast Guard says the death toll is 81, with hundreds more missing. Officials have been collecting DNA samples from family members to assist with the identification of the victims. 17 Pakistani citizens have been arrested in connection to human trafficking rings. Pakistan is in the midst of its worst economic crisis in decades. Well, ahead, Western officials tell CNN Ukraine's counteroffensive is having less success than they had expected and hoped. We'll tell you their assessment ahead. And President Obama, in an exclusive interview with CNN, Christiane Amanpour just talked to him. We'll show you part of that conversation coming up. President Joe Biden has made the battle of democracy versus autocracy a centerpiece of his foreign policy, frankly, his entire presidency. Today, to some degree, that slogan is going to be tested quite a bit. The White House is rolling out the red carpet for Indian Prime Minister Narendra Modi with a state dinner and extensive talks in the Oval Office. Now, Modi is massively popular in his home country of India, the world's largest democracy. But that democracy has certainly drifted toward authoritarianism with crackdowns on dissent and journalists, on opposition leaders along with alleged human rights abuses against Muslims and religious minorities. Arlette Sines is live at the White House. And Arlette, that, that, 
the framing of that, I think, underscores the complicated public message here. But there's also very real reasons behind the scenes why White House officials view this as a necessity. What is it? Yeah, Phil, President Biden is really navigating an incredibly fraught situation, as you outlined those human rights concerns and also this concern about India sliding towards authoritarianism. But uh, behind the scenes, officials argue that the reason why the president is hosting Modi for this visit is because they view him as a key ally in their Asia strategy, especially when you consider the geopolitical landscape in regards to Russia and China. And that is why the president has invited him here to the White House, even as, as he is drawing some criticism for hosting such a lavish affair for the Indian prime minister. That includes that welcome ceremony on the South Lawn and extends all the way to a state dinner this evening. Uh, but there are expected to be some uh, agreements that are rolled out in the defense and technology space. Uh, that includes India uh, purchasing um, some uh, drones, as well as this agreement for GE to produce engines for India's uh, aircraft in in India itself. But perhaps the most closely watched moment will come after President Biden and the Indian Prime Minister's Oval Office meeting. And that is when the two leaders stand before the press to make remarks and take questions. It's notable in the daily guidance, the White House isn't calling this a news conference. But uh, behind the scenes, we're told that there are very delicate negotiations about how to proceed with this moment. Every state visit typically holds, uh, contains a press conference. But Indian officials were told initially balked at the White House's request to hold a news conference. Uh, Modi does not often take questions from the uh, press back in his home country. So this will be a significant moment. They've agreed to take one-in-one -one questions uh, from reporters. Uh, and it's a moment that will be watched not just here at home, but also abroad. Yeah, uh, it's going to be fascinating. And I know there was a big battle behind the scenes. You guys have done some great reporting on that. I do want to ask you, though, before I let you go, um, you've been reporting on when President Biden talked about referring to Chinese President Xi Jinping as a dictator, uh, the Chinese ambassador to the U.S. made, quote, strong protests, senior officials, uh, after that comment. What's the White House view on where things stand right now in a very delicate uh, balance in that relationship? Yeah, well, the White House hasn't responded just yet to that news that the Chinese ambassador issued these strong protests, but they really have shown no sign so far of walking back President Biden's comments when he likened uh, Chinese President Xi Jinping to a dictator and also said that she was embarrassed by the fact uh, that that Chinese spy balloon had been uh, traveling over the country. Uh, one senior administration official simply said it should be no surprise that President Biden is speaking with candor, uh, especially when it comes to China. But it does come at an incredibly tense moment. Uh, Blinken had just been in China trying to stabilize the relationship. Uh, and this just throws another wrench in uh, this very tense and fraught relationship between the U.S. and China. So we'll see if there's any further damage control that the U.S. tries to do. All right. Arlette Sines from the North Lawn. Busy day ahead. Thanks so much. Mm -hmm. We also have new reporting this morning on Russia's war in Ukraine. According to Western officials, in its early stages at least, Ukraine's counteroffensive is having less success than expected. One official saying it is, quote, not meeting expectations on any front. Meanwhile, they say Russian forces are proving to be more confident than anticipated. That is not a good combination. CNN Chief National Security Correspondent Jim Shudo joins us this morning. It's not good, Jim, but is it dire? It's not dire because it's early. Uh, Two Western officials and a senior U.S. military official tell me that the 
counteroffensive so far has not met expectations. And this is a combination of things. It is the uh, difficulty of breaching Russian defensive lines. They've had weeks, months to build up those lines. Uh, they have crowded them with landmines, uh, made it very difficult for Ukrainian forces, including armored columns, to, to penetrate those lines. And in addition to that, Russian forces are showing competence. Uh, they're showing competence in attacking uh, those, those armored columns with, with missiles, uh, with mines as well. They're also coordinating better with air power, which is something that uh, Western officials had not seen in the early stages of this invasion. Now, I should note, it is early. Western officials, including U.S. officials, remain optimistic that over the medium and longer term, Ukrainian forces will be able to make gains. I should also note that just as Russian forces have been adapting to Ukrainian tactics and capabilities, Ukrainian forces have been adapting in recent days and weeks to Russian defenses. They're doing, for instance, things like more dismounted operations, getting out of their armored vehicles uh, and at times breaching those lines. They've also had some success in recent days taking down Russian aircraft in the area. And that is key as well. That is key as well, mm -hmm. Jim. Uh, it's interesting that President Zelensky seemed yeah. to concede some of this struggle to the BBC when he yeah. essentially told them, you know, some people want some sort of Hollywood movie. That's not how this works. Can you talk to that? But also, there was the debate over F-16s and if the West should give them mm -hmm. and when. And you just mentioned some trouble in the air. Would that have helped? Listen, for, for, from Zelensky's perspective, he, he knows that, that people had an enormous amount of anticipation about this counteroffensive with high hopes, his own people uh, among them. And so far, those high hopes have not been met. And that's what Western officials are telling me about Western assessments of the counteroffensive so far. So, so Zelensky would be hard-pressed not to acknowledge that. But, but he's also, in effect, encouraging his own people and, and his Western and European supporters that it's not over by any means, and that given time and continued military support, Ukraine will have success going forward. And by the way, you mentioned F-16s, yeah. uh, Poppy. As you know, at every juncture, Ukraine is pushing for more and more capable weapons, and the F-16s certainly among them. Yeah, Jim, thank you for the reporting and analysis, as always. Phil. Well, extreme heat in Texas as several cities break or tie records. And in India, the death toll rising after a week of its own brutal heat. Dr. Sanjay Gupta is here to tell us how to stay safe as those temperatures rise. Coming up next. More CNN This Morning to come after the break. Well, forecasters say it might be a few degrees cooler in Texas this morning, but the heat will return with a vengeance this weekend and in the next week. Six cities breaking or trying record highs in Texas this week, and Laredo temps reached 114 degrees in Midland, 111. Crews just south of Houston worked to repair a stretch of highway after it buckled from the intense heat. And in one region uh, in India, the brutal heat wave was blamed for at least 68 deaths in recent days. Temperatures there soaring to 114 degrees as well. Dr. Sanjay Gupta joins us now with more. I think seeing heat make a cement highway buckle tells us just how dangerous it can be to humans. How dangerous? Yeah, I mean, that, that's a really clear example. And I got to tell you, I was just in Austin dropping my daughter off at college orientation uh, it's hot. I mean, it, it was it was no joke down there. And, and, and to give you some some context, you know, we cover lots of natural disasters. If you look at uh, all the deaths caused by tornadoes and hurricanes, for example, 
extreme heat now claims more people, leads to more deaths than those two things combined. So in terms of natural disasters, extreme heat would cons be considered the most deadly. To give you some context, between 1980 and 2016, there was this recent study showed that the number of, of heat-related deaths has gone up 74%. So it's getting a lot hotter and wow. people are are dying more often as a result of that. Typically what happens is if you get closer to 105, 106 degrees, the number of people who are dying from cardiovascular disease-related uh, issues uh, will go double or even triple in those situations. That's typically what's happening. People are getting very hot. It's causing an extreme strain on their hearts, and that's what's often leading to deaths. But there can be other things as well. It affects the environment. There's more smog. You can get more respiratory diseases. So all these things combined, and as I say, it's getting worse around the world. In the United States, hundreds of people every year dying now from heat-related uh, disease, heat-related illnesses, I should say. Mm. Sanjay, is this just a temperature-specific kind of threshold, or are there other elements, I'm thinking humidity, things like that, that are also playing a factor here? Yeah, people always say, well, it's, it's, it's a dry heat, right, <laughs> versus a, a wet heat. And, but but there's, there's truth to that, actually. It, it's very interesting. I mean, put it to you like this. When you start to get very hot, your brain, specifically your hypothalamus, which is your, uh, responsible for your thermoregulation, sends a signal to your body to start sweating, to start cooling yourself by sweating. You get sweat on your skin, that sweat evaporates, that's how you cool yourself. Problem is, Phil, to your question, if you have a lot of humidity out there, that sweat doesn't do as much, it, it can't evaporate, there's too much water pressure in the air. So in fact, um, th there's this uh, thing known as the wet bulb temperature. A lot of people may not have heard of this, but it's in fact exactly what it sounds like. You're measuring the temperature both in dry and in wet conditions. And this is what a wet bulb thermometer looks like, but it's basically trying to determine how well will your body actually use uh, the, uh, the sweat to actually cool the body. If there's more water in the air, your body's not gonna be as efficient at that. If your wet bulb temperature starts to approach your body temperature, 95, 98 degrees Fahrenheit, for example, that's when it can become potentially deadly. You simply can't cool yourself at that point. Sanjay, what's the best way for people to stay safe in, in situations like this, outside of the obvious? Yeah, I mean, look, it, it, it's challenging. And when you're surrounded in that kind of environment, especially some of the places you were just listing at the beginning, it's really challenging. If you look at what ultimately is leading to morbidity and mortality here, it's, it's really all about hydration. So, you know, really making sure you, and again, I was just in Texas with my daughter, something I had to remind them of as well. You gotta be drinking before you get thirsty. Mm. And, you know, one cup of water every 20 minutes as a general rule. Um, you do tend to lose a lot of electrolytes. So trying to replace those electrolytes, not necessarily with salt pills, but with uh, beverages that have electrolytes in them, that can be really helpful. But again, I, I don't want to minimize. It's really challenging. Get to a cool place as much as possible. Yeah. As you tell our kids every single day, drink water, drink water, drink water. It's true. <laughs> I put those little electrolyte tablets in my yeah. water after I run. Those are helpful. Dr. Sanjay Gupta, thank you. Thank you. Thank Appreciate you. it as always. You got it. All right, well, search and rescue crews racing to find that missing submersible and its five passengers. The oxygen supply on board is rapidly dwindling. Also, wait for this. Our very own Christian Amanpour sat down exclusively with former President Obama. We will have that interview for you ahead. Well, 
good morning, everyone. We're so glad you're here with us on CNN this morning. I have Phil by my side as we cover these major developments overnight. Just moments ago in the search for the missing sub near the Titanic shipwreck, a remote operated vehicle has reached the ocean floor. That is a positive sign to be able to continue that underwater search. We'll take you live to Newfoundland. And also new this morning, former President Obama sitting down for an exclusive interview with CNN's Christiane Amanpour in mm. Athens, Greece. What he's saying about the state of democracy around the world. Also, special counsel Jack Smith is now indicating he might have multiple recordings of former President Donald Trump. This is in the classified documents case. All of that and more this hour of CNN This Morning starts right now. Good morning, everyone. A remote-operated vehicle has reached the ocean floor and is searching right now for the missing sub that vanished near the Titanic shipwreck. That's the new and significant announcement from just a short time ago from the U.S. Coast Guard. Sonar picked up banging sounds again yesterday, but the Coast Guard has not been able to find where or what those noises are coming from. You're looking at video of a Canadian surveillance plane dropping sonar probes. Now, this is part of that desperate search that is now entering a dire stage this morning. It is feared the five people on board might have little to no breathable air left at this point. Also new overnight, OceanGate's founder and CEO, who was piloting the Titan submersible when it went missing, is coming under even more scrutiny. A former subcontractor who helped develop the sub says the construction materials and design choices were considered controversial and experimental. The pressure hull itself on Titan is made out of primarily carbon fiber. Carbon fiber is a, is a completely untested material in this application, and um, that has uh, been a, a many late-night discussions. Well, Miguel Marquez is live in St. John's, Newfoundland. And Miguel, even more ships are heading to the search area right now with special equipment. What's the latest? Yeah, there's uh, salvage gear that arrived overnight in a U.S. military plane, a C-17. It's at the airport now. It'll be transported down here and then put on a ship and then moved out there. But re reminder, it takes about 24 hours to get from here to there, maybe 20 hours or so. But still, it's a long time when they have a, a dwindling uh, window for saving these people if, in fact, they are alive. The, the, the time that they estimated they might have for oxygen uh, expires about now, but PH Nargelet is on that craft. Uh, people I've spoken to uh, here that know him, that, that know his abilities, say that he would have kept people calm in there, kept them breathing very shallowly so they could preserve as much oxygen as possible. So searchers here, this is still very much a search and rescue mission, and searchers here are going to treat it as though they are alive. Important that they got an ROV down to the bottom and on on the, 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 the bed of the ocean in that area, but they still don't know exactly where the Titan submersible is. There's no beacon, no clear indication of, of where it is. Those banging noises you mentioned, they were described as banging noises by some Coast Guard saying they might be banging, they might be something else. They're not entirely sure what they are, but it's their best cue, uh, clue right now. It is a sliver, a tiny sliver of hope, and they're grabbing onto that, moving to the area where they heard that sound in the hopes of finding them and being able to rescue them. If they can locate that submersible, then they'd have to get the salvage gear out there, yeah. get it down to it, and literally tow it to the top. Back to you guys. Yeah, several steps ahead, but hoping 
can find the submersible. Miguel Marquez, thanks so much. Let's go now to someone who has written extensively about another famous sub-rescue mission, the miraculous rescue of the crew of the Pisces 3 submarine after that vessel sank more than 1,500 feet below the North Atlantic in 1973. Stephen McGinty, he is an award-winning journalist and the author of The Dive, the untold story of the world's deepest submarine rescue. We really appreciate you being with us. I'm sure that you have a different perspective than so many, given all of your reporting on what happened and the miracle of 1973. What is different now about the ability to find and rescue people in a situation like this? Well, well, what's, what's fascinating is that the, the rescuers are finding themselves in the same um, situation today as the men um, back in 1950, sorry, back 50 years ago in 1973, because the, the Titan is, is deeper than any other submarine has been rescued from. Pisces 3 was in the same position. It was 1,700 feet down, whereas the Titan, as we know, is about 12,000 feet down if it's down by the, by the Titanic. The, the, ironically, the system that, that could potentially get it to the surface is similar to the rescue in 1973. In 1973, there was a massive rescue operation involving Americans flying from San Diego, carrying a remote-operated a remote, um, vehicle, the Canadians bringing over a small uh, Pisces-type uh, submarine, and the Brits also bringing a, a small Pisces-type machine. So effectively, what happened was they pulled their resources um, the difference then was that they were able to, uh, they were in constant communication with the Pisces three and with the men, Roger Chapman, Roger Mallinson, which tragically is the situation we're not in today. But they also had the same situation that the, the men um, on the surface today have, which is they did not know where the Pisces was initially. Um, the, you know, the fact was that back in 1973, the way that the kept track of these small submarines was they had a buoy on the surface which was attached to the submarine using a very, very long stretch of rope. If you think of the scene in Jaws where the barrel's on the surface, that's how they tracked it. And unfortunately, the Pisces, when it first got to the surface, it disconnected that buoy and then it sank. So they had no idea where it was initially. Mm. You know, I think when people compare the depth of where the Pisces was versus where uh, this submersible is now. Uh, the, there are several differences, including communication. Um, you think this is not going to end the way it ended in 1973, but there have been major technological advances in terms of a search and recovery uh, capability. Is that a fair assessment of things? Uh, I, I no, there has been. And the irony is that one of the men on board Pisces 3, Roger Chapman was a, a submariner with the Royal Navy before he became went into the commercial field and was on Pisces 3. He developed one of the submarines that, that, that are used today in terms of um, transferring men from one submarine to another when it becomes trapped. The problem is that they only operate at a depth of about, about 1,000 or 1,500 feet. However, the, the RUV vehicles can go down much, much deeper, and that's what will be required today. Ironically, I know it's a very, very thin sliver of hope uh, that, that, success, that a rescue could be successful, but the irony is it would be using the same method. It would be a, a remote-controlled vehicle getting down to the depth and attaching some kind of grappling hook onto the submarine and then hauling them to the surface. Wow. Uh, you wrote about what that crew that was miraculously rescued in 1973 went through and um, their, their fears, um, fear of carbon dioxide, poisoning, a lack of food. What insight can you give us from just the human response and the human toll from them? Well, well 
there was footage of them after the, the, the after the recovery, seeing how calm it was and how everyone was comfortable, and, and that was that was clearly the, the British stiff upper lip on display. It was a, a desperately worrying um, and concerning time. They had to remain. Roger Mallinson um, was always thinking about how to, to how the rescue could be carried out, and Robert Roger Chapman appreciated there was nothing they could do, and it was best that they both remain as calm as possible, did as little um, talking as possible, slept when they could, but they also had went through massive amounts of pain as a consequence of of rationing the use of the scrubber. Now the scrubber is what takes the carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere and has to be operated, and you can have. You can have all the oxygen you need, but if you cannot get rid of the carbon dioxide, that will kill you. Um, so they had to ration the use of the scrubber, which produced agonising headaches and made, the, you know, made them very, very sick at the time. So it was, it was an ordeal. And the irony was that the worst part of the, the rescue was hauling them to the surface because the, there was a storm at the time. So the vessel at the, at the top was rising up and going down, up and down. And so when it towed them to the surface, they were being shaken about like a fish in a hook. And um, they found it extremely, uh, extremely difficult. Stephen McGinty, the perspective is sort of surreal. Uh, thank you very, very much for sharing it with us. Yeah. Well, another Republican throwing his name in the 2024 race for the White House. Will Hurd is running. Remember we asked him last week, are you running? He's running. Well, this morning, CNN's Christiane Amanpour just had an exclusive one-on-one -on -one sit down with former President Barack Obama. The two are in Athens, Greece, the birthplace of democracy, and had a very candid discussion of the war in Ukraine, the upcoming U.S. election, and how to navigate a global, uh, very global, very tricky relationships with autocratic leaders. Christiane will join us in a moment. First, here's part of that conversation. President Biden, man who you know extremely well, has made the defense of democracy the sort of centerpiece of his, of his administration. It just so happens that right now there's also not just, you know, threats to democracy by dictatorships and autocrats, but also illiberal democracy as well. Yeah. He has called the president of China a dictator, and they're sticking with it. He is also hosting, as we speak, the prime minister of India, Modi, mm. who is considered autocratic or at least illiberal Democrat. Mm. What is the point, I guess, or how should a president mm. engage with those kinds of leaders, either in the naming of them or in the dealing with them? It, 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 look, it's, it's complicated. Uh, the president of the United States has a lot of equities. And uh, when I was president, uh, you know, I would deal with uh, figures, in some cases who were allies, who you know, if you if you pressed me in private, you know, do they run uh, their governments uh, and and their political uh, parties in in ways that I would say are ideally democratic? I'd I'd have to say no. Do you want to name but, names? But no, of course not. But you had to do business with them because they're important for national security reasons. There there are uh, you know a, a range of uh, economic mm -hmm. interests. You know, I dealt with China to get the Paris Accords done. Uh, I dealt with Modi to get the Paris Accords done, because I think climate change is something that transcends, uh, you know, any uh, particular momentary uh, issues. It, it, it's a it's a problem that humanity's got to deal with over the next several decades in a serious way. Um, 
I do think that it is appropriate for the President of the United States, uh, where he or she can, to uphold uh, those principles and to challenge, uh, whether behind closed doors or in public, um, trends that are troubling. And so um, I'm less concerned about labels than I'm concerned about you know, specific practices. Uh, you know, I think it is important for the President of the United States to say that if uh, you have Uyghurs in China uh, who are being placed in mass camps uh, and re-educated, quote unquote, uh, that's a problem. That, that's a challenge to all of us, uh, and, and we have to pay attention to it. I think it is true that if uh, um, the president meets with Prime Minister Modi, then the protection of the Muslim minority in a majority Hindu India, uh, that's something worth mentioning. Uh, because, and by the way, if, if I had a conversation with uh, Prime Minister Modi, who I know well, Part of my argument would be that uh, if you do not protect the rights of ethnic minorities in India, uh, then the, there is a strong possibility India at some point uh, starts pulling apart. And, and we've seen what happens when you start getting those kinds of large internal uh, um, conflicts. So, so that would be contrary to the interests, not just of Muslim India, but also Hindu India. So, I think it's important to be able to talk about these things honestly. You're never going to have a, a things are never going to be as clean as you'd like right. because the world is complicated. Well, Christiane likely to join us later. She also has a special coming on the entirety of that interview later tonight, yeah. which I'm very much looking forward to. 10 p.m. Eastern, you see right there. Um, tune in for that. Right now, we want to bring in CNN political analyst, senior political correspondent at the New York Times, Maggie Haberman. Um, Maggie, I want to talk about everything that you're deeply engaged in covering every single day, but just listening to that, I think the president, former president has certainly been more candid since he left office, um, but digging in on a very central issue uh, to the current president, but also, I think, to some degree, the campaign coming up. I think the campaign coming up, I think that, you know, he was talking primarily about relations with foreign leaders, but realistically, it can apply to your point domestically, too. And I think that this is an argument that actually you haven't seen very many Democrats make about the, the pro-democracy efforts, which is that it's complicated, that it's not clean cut. It's not, you know, it's not up and down always. And that sometimes you have to make decisions that are not necessarily in keeping with other professed ideals, but because there is a broader world out there. I, I do wonder how much we're going to see uh, President Obama out there making arguments like this that supplement what President Biden has been saying. I mean, I think that there's always one of the, the concerns that Democrats have, particularly people around Joe Biden have, is that Obama is such a better communicator, such a more natural communicator, that is there going to be that inevitable comparison with Obama? I, I think it speaks to the moment we're in and the moment the Democrats find themselves in. Uh, you know, I, I don't know how much of this Obama is discussing with the White House. I don't know how much of this is just mm. him wanting to make his voice heard. Um, but I do wonder if it portends hearing from him more going forward. It's also just really interesting timing that he's mm -hmm. doing this right after, as Christian pointed out, uh, Biden at that fundraiser in San yep. Francisco, uh, you know, called she a dictator. And then yep. the fact that he is hosting Modi. The White House, we should note, did get some concessions agreements. They're going to hold a joint press conference. That's a big mm -hmm. deal. Modi didn't want to do that. Mm -hmm. He doesn't do that in mm -hmm. India. So journalists will be able to ask him these hard questions, too. 
Do you think we'll hear from the White House whether or not President Biden brought up these many human rights concerns? And treatment of journalists in India? Yeah, I actually think that that's something that the White House will likely address. I think that they tend to be uh, willing to engage on issues like that. I think that whether they're going to want to have a broader conversation about, to your point, the contradictions between, you know, clearly outlining in she... In the same week. In the same week. And when she... When, 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 when you're in such different circumstances, right, when you're hosting Modi in person. So, you know, I, I do think this is going to be a contradiction they are going to uh, get pushed on. Again, I think the point that Obama is making is that when you speak in absolutes, you are going to get questions like that, even if your commitment is absolute to democracy and to democracies globally, that we are living in a complicated world. Um, Maggie, stick with us, because we actually have Christiana Amanpour with us now. Uh, after that interview, we just heard uh, a block of that interview, Christiana, and we're just talking about with Maggie how kind of fascinating it was and the dynamic and how candid the president yeah. was, former president was to some degree. What was your sense of things after talking to him? Well, look, you know, this is the question, right? President Biden has made defending democracy the centerpiece of his administration. Uh, Look at Ukraine, obviously the defense of democratic Ukraine. But as they say, you know, it's complicated. There's realpolitik. You can go all the way back to Kissinger for that kind of, uh, you know, foreign policy of trying to maintain stability. I think what you're seeing, and you've probably already discussed this, many Democrats uh, don't like this. They see that Modi is autocratic, that Modi is, is cracking down on the press, on religious minorities, the Muslim minority, on political opposition, and that is, you know, autocratic, or at the very least, illiberal democracy. However, as you know, there is a very, very keen desire to try to win Modi over, to try to help him peel away from China. Mm -hmm. The entire focus, it looks like at the moment, of America's foreign policy is on China. And therefore, they're trying to get as much support as they can, including they're trying to get India's support to bolster the, I'm not the confrontation, but the idea of trying to make sure that China doesn't pose an even more dangerous threat. But again, it's risky, of course. Uh, Modi has not, uh, and India has not gone ahead with many of the UN resolutions against Russia on this Ukraine war, keeps buying uh, uh, Russian oil. So there's a lot to be discussed between them. Christian, uh, this is an exclusive interview. The fact that you got so much time with former President Obama in this moment, I was just saying to Phil, you're the perfect person to interview him in this moment. Can you give us a little bit of a highlight of what people will see tonight? Yeah, well, it is an amazing uh, time to get this interview because the former president is very, very, very much uh, engaged in the promotion of global democracy and the strengthening of American democracy. He's here as part of his foundation with with dozens, if not more than a hundred, what they call global youth leaders from his foundation, men and women, young men and women who they're trying to help really connect together and build and strengthen all the aspects of democracy from a grassroots up. Uh, vision, if you like, around the world. Of course, here we are in Athens, the birthplace of modern democracy. So essentially, we talked about the U.S. democracy. We talked about what he called creaky institutions around the world that need to be strengthened even in the U.S. I asked him about the spectacle of a former president who's been indicted on federal charges actually running uh, for office, the highest office in the land, perhaps the world. And he said, of course, it's not ideal, but it is absolutely fundamental for Americans and others around the world to see that America upholds the rule of law and that the law applies to everybody. He said that was absolutely fundamental. And I'll say another thing, too. He spoke at length about global and U.S. 
inequality and inequity, in income inequality and all the other inequalities that are so fundamental to the degradation of democracy in both the U.S. and around the world. And to be fair, and I'm just going to say it, he said, you know, the, the, the submarine, the submersible uh, sinking, and we don't quite know what's going to happen, is a terrible tragedy. And yet, not enough, uh, you know, resources and attention was put on 750 poor people who were caught in the boat off the coast of Greece where we are right now and who almost all have died except for maybe just over 100 people were saved. You know, these are the kinds of inequalities and all that goes with trying to rectify inequality that's, that's going to be necessary in order to preserve democracy. Right. You, you can't argue with that. I mean, and we were just talking earlier about how many yeah. Pakistanis are still missing and the dire economic circumstances that country is mm -hmm. in, for example. So it is it is all tied together. Christian, I will stay up late for you to watch this because it will be extraordinary. We really appreciate it. Joining us live from Athens, Greece. You'll see this full exclusive one on one Christian and the former president on democracy. It is tonight, 10 p.m. Eastern on CNN. More CNN this morning to come after the break. Well, this just in just moments ago, former Texas Congressman Will Hurd announcing he will enter the Republican primary in the race for the White House. He made the announcement just moments ago on CBS. And I want to let everybody know that this morning, um, I filed to be the Republican nominee for president of the United States. Uh, this is a, a decision that my wife and I decided to do because we live in complicated times and we need common sense. There are a number of generational defining challenges that we're faced with in the United States of America. Everything from the Chinese government trying to surpass us as the global superpower. Uh, the fact that inflation is persistent at a time when technologies like artificial intelligence is going to upend every single industry. And our kids, their, their scores in math, science, and reading are the lowest they've ever been hmm. in this century. These are the issues we should be talking about. And to be frank, I'm pissed that we're not talking about these things. Let's bring in CNN's Eva McCann. And Eva, tell us where this goes from here now that he's in. Well, the field certainly getting more crowded, Phil. Listen, former Congressman Will Hurd essentially argues that no one in the field is adequately confronting the former president. He served in Congress for three terms. He's a former CIA operative. He served actually in a very large district along the U.S.-Mexico border. He was known during the time for driving around the entire district. Not only is he an outspoken critic of the former president, he's also really brutally indicted his own party, arguing that far too much time has been spent on these cultural battles and not enough time on these generational challenges. So you heard a little bit of that there, talking about the threat of China and Russia and how America is going to adequately respond to AI replacing American jobs. He has long championed moderation, castigating the far right and the far left, saying it's the moderates that actually get stuff done on the Hill. And he was an effective lawmaker during his time in Washington, uh, getting many bills passed. Now, historically, he's been a strong fundraiser and, aggress and an aggressive campaigner. 
But it's not clear the Republican Party has an appetite for what he's offering at this time. I was in Iowa just a few months ago, uh, and he was there, and you can see he was testing the waters. We'll have to see if people are receptive to this message. But he is unique in that it is just sort of him and Chris Christie, really, that are so directly confronting the former president. All right, we'll have to keep an eye on that. Eve McKen, thanks so much. All right, let's bring back in CNN political analyst, senior political correspondent at The New York Times, Maggie Habram. And Maggie, to Eva's uh, really important last point, it's about the appetite of the party right now, the party that elected Trump in 2016 and the party that has him by far the, the front runner right now in the, in the primary polling. So what does that mean for Will Hurd as candidate? Well, I think there's a, a third component, which is that this field is expanding. I mean, I think her is, uh, yeah, I was going to say, I think he's the 12th yeah. candidate to get in. Uh, it's pretty surprising how many late entrants we have seen. And that speaks, frankly, not just to the fact that Trump is continuing to dominate in this field, which he is, but also the fact that Ron DeSantis, the governor of Florida, who had been seen as the likeliest, you know, possibility to topple Trump, has gone down. He has not, you know, sustained what had been a, a, a decent polling number. Um, and so I, I think that you're seeing a lot of people who want to get in that thins out the opposition to Donald Trump. So it is not just, is there an appetite for, you know, a candidacy like Will Hurd's on its own, but it's that when you're actually looking at a field in which clearly there isn't a huge appetite for that, just based on how well Trump is doing and then DeSantis behind him, you're then splitting a smaller segment of the party up. So, you know, I think that, listen, I think Hurd, I think Chris Christie think that they are making important cases. I think they are making cases about the soul of the Republican Party, uh, which has changed tremendously under Donald Trump and what they would like to see go back to, you know, if not, you know, I don't think the Republican Party was ever, you know, purely of, of Will Hurd and Chris Christie. I think they're more moderates, but I do think that there was room for them in the Republican Party. Now there's much less of that. I don't know how much attention anyone can get right now just challenging Trump when Trump is sucking all the oxygen out of the room, both on his own and also because of his legal problems. So again, I mean, I think the question Will Hurd knows all of the things that you just laid yeah. out. He's a very astute he, political say, mind. He's well aware. I'm he's not very well aware. Right. No, no. Out. But, right. you know, I had a Republican, as we were showing this, that texted me, uh, nobody who's announcing on a network morning show actually is serious about trying to be president in this primary. Um, that's not I mean, my point is, is that like <laughs> okay. the constituency. No, the idea of <laughs> there's not a clear pathway right now. Right. Who is his audience? Why do this if you're concerned that Trump could be president? Again? Yeah, I mean, I think that is the point, right? right? I think the point is that essentially there are candidacies that are more tailored to the media and the mainstream media than there are candidacies that are tailored to, uh, you know, the Republican primary electorate. And yes, in general, in general, you know, a, a candidacy that begins with a rally in, in Iowa or South Carolina, um, you know, or somewhere where you're taking it directly to the voters would, would probably, um, you know, suggest less of a media-centric candidacy, a candidate like Will Hurd um, or had Chris Sununu run or Chris Christie, who is running, they do require a lot of media attention. Yeah. So, I mean, the, the whole, they're not really serious point. It, it's hard to take a line like that seriously, only because, um, it, again, the, there is such a, a, a high bar for anybody to gain traction in this Republican primary against Donald Trump. I understand that there is the belief among some that if, you know, and within the Republican Party, Trump's going to sink of his own weight. 
the indictments are going to bring him down. That may all prove true. It also may not prove true. Right. We have seen Donald Trump survive one thing after another. And at the moment, you know, again, a lot can happen between now and Iowa and New Hampshire. Um, but not that much can happen between now and <laughs> Iowa and New Hampshire. And so at a certain point, it has to be people beyond just Asa Hutchinson, Chris Christie and Will Hurd who are taking an aggressive case to Donald Trump. It has to be people who are getting more attention Action. and we'll see what happens. Yeah. Maggie Haberman, thank you. And thanks for sticking around. Yeah. Appreciate it. Well, a former Ocean Gate subcontractor, subcontractor tells CNN some of the cutting edge technology on the now missing submersible were considered controversial when it was being made. That report ahead. Also coming up, we'll talk to someone who pulled out of an expedition on that vessel over safety concerns. A big development this morning in that desperate search for the sub that vanished near the Titanic shipwreck. The U.S. Coast Guard says a remote-operated vehicle has reached the ocean floor and is now searching for the Titan submersible. Sonar did pick up banging sounds again yesterday. They have not been able to figure out what or where the sounds are coming from, though. The, the search and rescue operation is, though, entering a dire stage this morning. It is feared that the five people on board may not be able to to have enough air left to breathe in just a few hours. And there's new questions about whether the Titan could even withstand the immense pressure of being at such extreme depths. A former subcontractor who helped develop the submersible tells CNN the construction materials and design choices were considered controversial and experimental. CNN's Veronica Miracle spoke to him. Veronica, good morning. Thank you for being with us. I think this is what so many people have questions about because the CEO of this company said many times on camera, you know, what I'm doing is breaking the rules, but I believe in the engineering and the science. What did you learn? Yeah, Poppy, uh, the subcontractor who worked on this, DJ Vernig, had a lot of specific interesting points to make. He spoke highly of the CEO, but he did say that they moved very quickly in this development. Just a, ba a little background, DJ Vernig worked on the testing and development of the Titan here in Everett, Washington, back in 2018. And he said a lot of the design choices that they, that they made were considered very controversial at the time, innovative, but not necessarily tried and true methods. He said in order to achieve what they were trying trying to do, which is to create a lightweight submersible that could fit a lot of people, in this case five, they made decisions like not having a conning tower, uh, which would allow people to get in and out of the submersible and open the hatch to allow oxygen in if it made it to the surface, which is obviously a problem. The Titan right now has to be opened from the outside. He also talked about the material of the hull. Take a listen. The pressure hull itself on Titan is made out of primarily carbon fiber. Various people from around the world uh, uh, felt like that was a very experimental choice. Now, um, to, to Stockton and Titan and uh, Ocean Gate's credit, they actually uh, answered that to the best of their ability. But then the question is, well, if you do that repeatedly, then what happens? But if you really are pushing the envelope, um, there's no time to, you know, you're, you're answering those questions in real time. Poppy, he also told me that OceanGate's mission was never adventure tourism. It simply means to an end. Really, what they're trying to do is to explore the undiscovered parts of the ocean. But they knew in order to get the funding that they needed, uh, they had to have high ticket items like taking people down to the Titanic in order to achieve what they're trying to do. Poppy. Veronica, thank you very much. It's fascinating to hear. 
And our next guest pulled out from a reservation for an expedition on the Ocean Gate Titan over safety concerns. He's also friends with one of the passengers, Hamish Harding. Joining us now is Chris Brown. Uh, Chris, thanks so much for joining us. You know, you may have heard what uh, the reporting has been over the, some of the concerns in the engineering. Did you share concerns related to those specific issues or what caused you a couple of years ago to, to decide not yeah, to move forward? There's, there's quite a, yeah, sorry, there's quite an overlap with my own thinking there. Um, <clears throat> When you, you pay the deposit to go on something like this, it tends to be staged. Um, you pay a small deposit, then you pay a little bit more when they reach the first milestone and a bit more when they reach a second milestone. Uh, those milestones were based on depth achievement um, and they, they were constantly missing them. Uh, and we're not talking massive depths. So when I eventually pulled out at the end of 18, um, they hadn't got below 300 meters. Bear in mind that the wreck's at 3,800 meters. Um, there was, I also had some reservations about the way it was being constructed, um, using, using construction piping for ballast. That's the kind of thing you do when you're trying to put something together between, you know, let, let's get some rope and try and get across this river. It, it didn't seem the sort of thing that you'd be doing for a commercial craft to repeatedly go down to, to great depths. Um, they had um, a bit of an incident when they were testing off the Bahamas when there was a, a lightning strike and it blew all the electronics. That's one thing. But uh, my question was, where's the backup? Where's the redundancy? Because if that happened just as you're about to think, you know, you, you're a bit, bit messed. Uh, but the final tipping thing was that it became evident that they weren't going to seek certification for the vessel. Um, to dive once, let alone to do repeated dives, like your previous correspondent uh, intimated. It's it's a different different beast going down once to going down several times. Um, and when when they weren't even intending to get certification by calling it an experiment, uh, that's when I thought there's just too many red flags here. Mm -hmm. So I pulled out. Yeah. What's stunning to, to me is the fact that this really wasn't regulated because it doesn't fall under the Passenger Vessel Safety Act of 1993 because it you know, wasn't operating in U.S. waters, didn't carry an American flag, but it also didn't fall under the need to have Canadian supervision. So there's, there was no one to blow the whistle. And I wonder if your friend, who is on board still, Hamish Harding, talked to you about these risks and the concerns. Did he share your concerns? Uh, we, we didn't discuss the specific concerns around this form of dive. No, we didn't go into that. Um, as uh, experienced explorers, we're aware of the risks of anything that we do, whether it's going up a mountain to ocean depths into the middle of a jungle. You look at the risks that are there, you assess them, you try and mitigate them by bringing in experts, uh, mitigate them by using um, better equipment, maybe even something as simple as changing the date or the time that you do the expedition. Um, and and you, you take a personal view on whether you accept those risks. Hamish um, accepted those risks. He's, he's quite experienced at taking quite high risks. I think you know that he's a world record holder for pole to pole flying at very high altitude. Um, I just thought that there was too many things that did not look right. Um, maybe I was looking at a different place from Hamish. Yeah. Uh, maybe his desire to get down to the Titanic was just greater than mine. 
Um, it's not really the issue. I mean, we, we're still in a search and rescue position and yeah. we're still hoping against hope that they, they can find these guys. We all are. And we hope that you can be reunited with your friend, Chris Brown. Thank you. Thank you. We'll be right back. For the first <laughs> this song. For the first time ever, U.S. regulators have approved the sale of what is being called lab-grown meat. Now, two California companies will be authorized to deliver it to America's restaurants and eventually to supermarket shelves. Would you eat it? According to some polls, it is a divisive question. CNN senior data reporter Harry Anton is here with this morning's number. Um, obviously, we're playing Jimmy Buffett, cheeseburger in paradise. You could have a lab-grown cheeseburger. Sure, right? you could have a lab-grown cheeseburger. But I guess the question is, why <laughs> would you necessarily want to do that? All right, this morning's number is... 50% because that's the percentage of Americans who are unlikely to even try this lab-grown meat. Get this, just 18% they were, 18% said they were extremely or very likely to actually try it. So clearly the momentum is on the side of, ew, we do not want this. And why do we not want this? All right, number one, 56% said it just sounds weird. 48% said it doesn't sound safe. 35% said no reason to change the meat that I'm eating. And 27%, which was perhaps the big one. Is this polling meets CNN standards? Absolutely. Are you sure? Associated Press, the North Pole. This is a very high-quality poll. I can't believe they polled this. They they polled this. They they knew that this was coming. (laughs) They polled this. I guess the question is, what about you two? What do you think of this? First off, I I didn't actually sign up or give my approval to participate in the poll. What I would say, can you go back to the, the big number? Yeah. So, like, this gives me faith in society. Oh, gosh. And in our country and that we can make it because... We There's can no reason to eat all. grown meat. Come on. There's no reason. I don't even want to know your. Okay, first of all, Jose Andres, who we all admire. You came with sources and data? Well, I'm reading our reporting on it. Is partnering with them. Also, as you know, my daughter is a vegetarian, a yes, strict vegetarian. Yes. And so she picks a little chicken out of the Campbell soup. This gives her another option and me another option in the kitchen, right? I, I, I would just note that. That isn't tofu. Only 5% of Americans are vegetarians. That number has basically stayed the same. Americans like their meat. Look, the meat consumption is way up for the average American, up to 227 pounds per year, way up from 167. Okay. Americans like Do you meat. know what else? Climate change. Yes, that would, okay. Be, okay. That would be the argument. Okay. Thank you. That is a policy Thank element you. I will consider. Thank it, you. It, taste won't work, but if you can make the environmental case, I think that I is totally the case can. to make okay. on this particular This is topic. a great number. Thank, Thank you. you, Harry. Well, if you ask any NBA insider, Victor Wemayama will be the first pick in tonight's draft. Tonight? Tonight's draft. We'll take a deeper dive into part of what makes him one of the biggest NBA prospects in 20 years. It's really tall. See, you couldn't argue with my climate change. You ready for this? <laughs> Not really. It's be great. Don't worry. It's be great. Well, it'll be a surprise to absolutely no one when Victor Wemayama is the first name called at tonight's NBA draft. The French phenom is likely heading to the San Antonio Spurs, a franchise with a knack for picking Hall of Fame big men with the first overall pick. Now, many believe he is the biggest draft prospect since LeBron James. And when LeBron got drafted 20 years ago, Mamiyama wasn't even born yet. (laughs) But in the days leading up to his big night, the 19-year-old got the full New York City treatment which can prove challenging when you're seven foot five. Upon arriving at Newark International Airport, he was swarmed by fans, barely clearing the signs above him in the terminal. And as you can imagine, riding the subway, that proved a little tough. 
On Tuesday, he caught a Bronx-bound D train to throw out the first pitch at Yankee Stadium. Look at that. He barely fits in the station, let alone inside the subway car. And that was that first pitch, not exactly a strike, but certainly better than mine would be. Most of us don't have hands, though, the size of dinner plates, which is which was very evident when he posted this. That is, just to be clear, a regulation-sized baseball. Is it not, Phil? Uh, no, that, that is. Uh, and literally throwing a better first pitch out is all I have over this individual. He's tall. He has huge hands. But what about his wingspan? Now, from one hand to the other, Wimuyama measures a whopping eight feet. That's a longer wingspan than a bald eagle. His standing reach is almost 10 feet, which means he can almost touch a regulation basketball rim without jumping. Still, how tall is seven foot five, really? Let's take a look at some NBA greats for comparison. Muggsy Bogues was the shortest player in NBA history at five foot three. His Space Jam co-star, the most important part of his career, Hall of Famer Michael Jordan, was listed at six foot six when he played for the Bulls. And how about LeBron? LeBron James, the four-time NBA champ, is six foot nine. And at seven foot one, the diesel and good friend of CNN this morning and one Poppy Harlow, Shaquille O'Neal, <laughs> is still four inches shorter than Wimbayama. But what if Poppy and I were standing back to back, starting in the backcourt for the Spurs next season? How would that actually look? Oh, look at that. Wait, it's, can we be real, we, though? This, wait, but this is... Right, I'm not going to take my shoes off. Also, I don't feel like that's... This is a, just a skewed perspective. <laughs> this is making me look very short. Didn't they say we have to walk to that mark, too? Oh, yeah. I feel like we're doing well, though. Yeah, are, are we doing, doing great? Well? Are we okay, no, 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 we're walking over there. Oh, is this, is this better for you guys? Oh, yeah. Wait, you're so... There we go. Okay, good. How we, are we doing? We totally dominated With these holograms. this hologram thing. Also, he's very tall. Very good. I can't wait to watch him... Tonight. Tonight! Great job, Poppy. CNN News Central starts now. <laughs> Have a good morning, guys. That is it for this episode of CNN This Morning. You can check out our lineup of podcasts and showcasts at cnn.com slash audio or in your favorite podcast app. Thanks for listening. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.